0: How much time am I spending doing
1: that? All right, we're just getting live here. So thank you everybody for joining us this week for the Chariot uh, Tech Chat Tuesdays. And I said it right this week. Um, that's always good. Okay. I know it's, it's rough right now, just as a personal point. It's rough right now, focusing on news stuff when there's everything going on with uh, Ukraine. And so it's really hard to deal with all that and watch all that. So I understand if you're joining us, hopefully this is a bit of a break. Um, but uh you know my thoughts are with them right now. Yes,
0: stay here.
1: The chariot techcast is available. Uh if you go to twitter.com slash techcast, if you ran into this, we have all our subscribe links right there. I've got a pinned tweet with all the information. Uh it's uh chariot solutions.com slash techcast is one way to get to it, iTunes, Google, whatever. We'd love to hear your feedback. And so you can tweet right to at techcast, and we would love to hear from you and hear what you have to say. So um we really appreciate that. You can also find us over on, whoa, stop. Is that me? That is me. I'm going to stop and uh, get out of the way here. Bye. That's very strange. I just watched myself talking about myself a second ago. <laughs> <laughs> but if you hit uh, youtube.com slash Chariot Solutions, you can go to the Tech Chat Tuesday feed and, you know, check everything out there too. We also have a blog, Chariot Solutions blog, and there's all sorts of nice things on there about a wide variety of technologies, uh, and we'll talk about other things later. But the big thing I wanna talk about is our upcoming conference, Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise 2022, coming up on April 19th to 20th. It's virtual this year, hopefully one last time, uh, but uh, we have a lot of really good speakers uh, in store for you. Good show. Um, So if you go down here and take a look, we've got uh, Corey Doctorow, Corey is uh, a futurist science fiction author. Uh, He's an activist and also a journalist. Uh, And so he has a podcast that happens every week uh, as well um, on a daily blog and pluristic.net. But he's going to be speaking. I'm not sure exactly what his talk is about, but uh, it's going to be a really amazing talk. And then just kind of plucking into, uh, two other speakers out, we just got uh, Harry Foxwell. He has an interesting uh, book out there called Creating Good Data, A Guide to Dataset Structure and Data Representation. So he is going to talk um, about that you know, data focus and such. Uh, and he's an associate professor at George Mason University's Department of Information Sciences and Technology. Um, we also have uh, Jessica Kerr who is a committee member this year, as well as being a longtime speaker at ETE. Uh, she's a developer advocate at Honeycomb. Uh, she's also done things like uh, Twitch streaming of coding sessions, which is really, really cool. Uh, and she's going to talk about gamification without competition. So her talks are always amazing. That's just a couple I can think of. Sujero, do you, you want to chime in anything on ETE?
0: Um, yeah, um, not on the talks, but kind of on you know what our virtual conferences are like for folks that don't yep. know about that or haven't attended before. Um, beyond having an amazing roster of talks, um, there's live moderation going on via Slack. And there's questions being asked and interaction happening before, during, and after the talk. So I want to stress that that interaction component is there. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of smart people asking questions, answering things um, beyond just a talk. And the speakers, um, the level of interaction directly with the speaker actually is much higher in my opinion or my experience has been that with the virtual version than live because, you know, live you're there and there's a line of people and there's only so many people that can ask questions or talk before they have to move to the next room, et cetera, where the speaker has to leave. There's not really any such limitation on the virtual version. People have gotten into deep conversations with the speakers. So if you were worried about that, I would say don't and come register and and do it virtually live because you're going to meet a lot of people that way too.
1: We get a lot of feedback from people who say the same thing. Uh, so, yeah, I, co- I completely agree. It's been very interactive, especially via the Slack, Slack mechanisms we've used over the last two years. And just a quick note, if you go to Chariotsolutions.com, I'm sorry, if you go to YouTube.com slash Chariotsolutions, you will find a uh, big giant Philly ETE 2021. Uh, so this was everything from last year. We will release that later in the summer when we get everything kind of lined up for that. But if you're an attendee of uh, Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise, you get the, all the videos within a week or two. Uh, that's generally the time frame we have now. So we're pretty quick at getting those for you. Uh, so, you know, look forward to that. Uh, so hopefully you can register. It's only 150 bucks right now. It's really cheap. Um, and that's I think that's a great value for some of the speakers that we have. Uh, we're talking about all sorts of things from, you know, uh, ethics and machine learning to, you know, Java and JavaScript and and uh, all sorts of other technologies, uh, GraphQL, you name it, uh, even even quantum computing. So a lot of really good talks. All right, enough of the plugs. Uh, let's get into the news. And I don't see Sue John. I think Sue John disappeared on me. So let's see here.
0: Can you see me now? I'm. Still I don't here. see you.
1: Yeah, add yourself back in. I think.
0: I don't know how to do that because it's showing me as in right now. Oh, and screen share is running as well.
1: You know when I take that back. It was only at the bottom that I don't see you. That's strange. Okay. never mind. It's one of those days for me. All right. So let's talk about some news items. First of all, I like this one that you picked. So
0: John, what's the oldest computer program still in use? So let me actually open that link as well. Sure. One sec. My apologies. But this was a pretty cool page that, goes over a number of things that I was amazed at some of the software that's still currently running, which let me, once I uh, highlighted, there is uh, some contract accounting software called MOCAS, if you scroll down to that. Yep, yep. Um, yep. This government software written in COBOL, still running, still being used after, I don't know if it was 48 years or you can see on there what the- uh, 1958.
1: 1958. So, yeah, 48
0: years roughly, right? Yes. And then- no, 46 years. No, it's 48. I'll take that
1: back. Whatever. Yeah, I can't 40, do math yeah, today. 40,
0: yeah. <laughs> it's not my day. Of, um, That's run. wild. should I have had this open already.
1: So this is a Cobol app.
0: Yes. So it's still running, right? It's it's still actually being used, which means someone has to be responsible for maintaining it if and when things go on. Like I would love to see what the commit logs or source code version history looks like for that piece of software. Um, all right, now I have the page. So wow. Uh, I guess my takeaway from that part of it is you never know how long something may actually run, right? When you're thinking about long-term architectural decisions, like we want to try out all the cutting edge stuff, the new things, of fancy, shiny tools, but depending on the industry, the domain, how, how important it is for that to just stable, stably work, especially when money's involved, um, I think it, it brings in a whole set of separate architectural and long-term considerations that have to be taken into account when you're designing software. Um, so it's pretty amazing. And then they mention um, like some of these are still running on punch cards, like <laughs> still, which is insanity. I, I just can't believe it. Um, there's another company that is uh spark went, with it,
1: filters. It looks yeah, like founded yeah. in
0: 1927 uh, water filtration devices um, that is using a 1948 IBM 402 punch card system still going live today. Um, and finally Voyager itself, right? So um, 1972 Voyager 2 was, la- was launched. Actually, no, one was launched in 1972, then in 1977 Voyager 2 was launched. And, you know, these they have three redundant sets of computers in there for flight data, computer commands, etc. Anyway, you know, that basically made it beyond the solar system, right? So um, outside of our heliosphere, outside of the influence of the sun, Amazing that that was still running and working. So, you know, it, not things that we consider day to day when we're writing software. Like, is radiation going to affect my software? You know, how do I make sure that this runs in a way that, you know, the whatever the defect rate or the number of times something happens is like one in one in a hundred millions or something extremely low? It has to be like, you know, 10 nines, 11 9 sort of uh, uptime.
1: Yeah, and you have cosmic rays, you know, interacting with everything. So, certainly that messes up. All sorts of circuits. They, I was reading about this, and it was saying that uh, in 2010, Voyager 2 started setting up garbled data here, and it turns out a single bit in a program had flipped from zero to one, and that must have been that kind of thing, like you know, cold or something, or maybe a cosmic ray flip, something. Who knows? Yeah. And so this and is from MIT
0: Technology Review, I should mention, by Glenn Fleischman, and at the end of the blog yeah. post, uh, they have if you if you have questions. They have a question of the week at technologyreview.com. So I guess they pick one out of that each week to answer. Oh,
1: that's fun. That is fun. You know, I was thinking to myself, like, I don't know if you could think of some cases where you were dealing with really old technology, but um, one of the first things I did when I got out of college, I worked at a, a consulting firm about two years out and we were using this old tool called Power Builder, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like a 3GL, like graphical desktop application development tool. And what we were doing, was using a using dde which is like a communication on windows to communicate with other windows programs to talk to a 3270 terminal to screen scrape old cics COBOL code (laughs) to then present it as a front end in power builder desktop tool and i thought that was crazy then and i still think it's crazy now but i'll bet that stayed there for years and uh it Another is. one was how about this one? Back in I think it was the mid, the late, probably late '90s when the internet was starting to become uh, actual like you know servers that did stuff like I mean, Amazon started doing their work and people started doing e-commerce. I did a Netscape Livewire app, which at the time Netscape wrote server-side JavaScript, so you would like write database connections and stuff in JavaScript, like you were writing nowadays Node.js. And I found that thing in the mid 2000s, still working. So on an old Solaris machine,
0: <laughs> like, yeah. wow. I, I actually have a lot more to say about this topic, but in, in interest of time, we'll have to move on.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm an old timer, man. Give me my old time.
0: You me too. My, uh, rocking chair out.
1: I wanted to point out, this is more just kind of a usability thing. Um, Mozilla just announced that they redid their website. I know it's always a thing. You're like, okay, great. You redid your website, but one of the things I didn't like about Mozilla when you went to the documentation was all these little side things would slide up as you were researching. So you can never really find anything um, without scrolling all the way to the back at the top of the page. They spent a lot of time reskinning it, making it look a little nicer, nice clean fonts. Dark mode. Um, dark mode, which I still like light mode because my eyes hate the contrast, but that's just me. They've really kind of organized a really quick access to all their references, which I think is great, and all their guides. Um, They have a nice big search in the beginning that's uh, nice and clean. Um, One thing they also did was they cleaned up the compatibility matrix to make it uh, just on the outset. And of course, I lost mine. Let me see here.
0: I mean, for those that don't know, like Mozilla, MDN, like they're kind of the de facto source of information for JavaScript, JavaScript APIs, browser specifications, um, a lot of stuff. Like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I, I rely on these resources.
1: Yeah, all the time. So if I grab like, uh, I'm going to take a guess here. Big six, big int64 array. So yeah, here we go. So they've really cleaned up the browser compatibility. So if it's currently supported by a browser, then by default it gets a check mark, and if it isn't, it has an X. And when you click on that thing, it gets into the actual version in which it was begun for support, which I think is great.
0: So much yeah, quicker. I used to use a website. I don't know if it's still maintained like it, I think it's called "Can I use
1: Yeah, yeah it, yeah
0: it would tell you like which feature was supported at what level by which browser
1: yeah, that's a really useful
0: one too. I'm glad
1: you brought that one up. Can I use that's another one where you like you know the audio tag oh that's still um, so
0: that web page is still a thing. nice.
1: it looks like it. I have to double check, but I think so. yeah, okay. yeah, all the version numbers make sense cool. You know, cool. Anyway, so yeah, com is another alternative to that that I'll have to throw in there. So that's kind of cool too. All right, neat. All right. Um, now I threw this in because I have a couple of JavaScript-y kind of things to talk about. Um, and this was uh, a little earlier, but someone tweeted it recently. Um, Ken C. Dodds, I think Ken C. Dodds might have dropped it somewhere, but JavaScript no for React, it's his article. And I'm going to sneeze, hold on. Okay, that's better. Um, JavaScript, know for React. Uh, and it's just one of those things where if you're going to start doing front-end application development or even Node development, you probably ought to double-check some of these more modern idioms and features because you're going to see code like it all over the place, especially if you're getting involved in doing code in React. So the the quick Dime Store tour here, template literals, which is the back tick stuff, um, really useful. Don't concatenate your strings in a console log. You don't need to do it. Uh, Or if you're putting a URL together, you can use these. Um, You know, that kind of thing. If you're putting... is like
0: JavaScript, the good parts, but for React.
1: Yeah, right. It is. It's modernized JavaScript, the the newer parts, I I guess I'll call it. Okay. Um, Here's another one that, that I do all the time. And then when people see it for the first time, they scratch their heads. If the property name and the variable that references it is exactly the same, then you only have to put the property name in when you're building an object. So for example, if I've got three variables, A, B, and C. If I'm console logging and I want to say A is this, B is this, and C is this, uh, I could do it the long way, or I could do it this way. It just says, okay, the variable called A has the value of A. So when it assembles the object, it makes the key the variable name, which is a really nice little shorthand thing. Anyway, it goes on like this. There's a bunch of these learning about arrow functions, um, you know, learning about destructuring where you're taking one parameter like obj and you're destructuring it variables uh, right away in the parameter list or, you know, uh, doing it here instead of doing them by hand and so on. Uh, and then, etc. at the very end, they go into like modules and. Ternary expressions. So, if you look through this and you don't know a lot of these things, and you're going to do JavaScript, they're not particularly super hard to learn, but you're going to see them everywhere. So, this will save you a lot of time if you have only programmed JavaScript, say, in you know, ten years ago. Take a look at this, update yourself, uh, and and see what you don't know, and pick it up. It's a it's a really good reference.
0: Now, interesting. I guess I have a quick question for you. Sure. I don't do TypeScript or React day to day. Is is this useful if you're only writing in TypeScript for React?
1: No, actually JavaScript. So this no, is that's all what, That's my
0: question. Like, if I'm saying yes. this, since this is for JavaScript, if I'm, I were like a TypeScript developer writing mainly TypeScript, and React is knowing this still helpful? I guess it absolutely
1: is. Okay. So, so the thing is, TypeScript is a superset of modern JavaScript, and it follows all the specifications. Um, so actually that's our next article or two articles down the road from here is that that, uh, basically you learn these things. They're immediately useful right away in TypeScript as well. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Sure. And then on the other side of this, well, what if you don't want to use JavaScript for some things or did you know that, you know, um, yeah. So, so like, you know, you might not need to use JavaScript for certain things and CSS can do a lot of cool stuff for you. Um, Folks, so, hearing example, Ken
0: say this, I, it's, I'm going to replay this over and over again.
1: It's going to be on a loop every time I talk, isn't it?
0: <laughs> you don't use it for everything.
1: You don't need JavaScript. Um, so, yeah, animating SVGs, I think that's the one a lot of people see, is you could do some pretty sophisticated CSS-driven animation. So there's an example in this lexoral.com blog article uh, where it kind of takes you through. I wouldn't be able to explain this for you, but uh, it's using... You know, animation settings in your style sheets with SVGs uh, to animate things. Like here's the explosion animation. Which is cool. You know, here are all the keyframes. So at 19%, it's rotated to zero, and 20%, it's rotated to 1.5, and so it's kind of doing its thing. Um, so pretty cool. You could do that kind of stuff. I'm not an artist, so I'm not. I'm going to go looking for someone who can do this stuff for me. But at least you know, if you want to fade something in or do something like that, CSS animations are certainly a way to do it without involving a lot of JavaScript stuff. I mean, um,
0: yeah, it's really become a great playground for learning programming. Like I learned, I kind of you know, I learned basic that way is writing games and doing graphics and music and sound and playing notes and feel like JavaScript is. Exactly in that same kind of space and you get a browser that everyone has on their devices So the, the cost of entry is very low to learn programming via the browser and JavaScript.
1: Yep. Yep so That's one then we have sidebars um, You know, you can fly out a sidebar with a bar with a transform when they hover over the element for example So that kind of thing can be pretty easily done with CSS instead of writing JavaScript or writing widgets and things like that So here's the code for that for example Interestingly, they're using Svelte, which is a uh, JavaScript framework for doing this kind of like hosting applications and such, I think.
0: I want someone Um, to write a a JavaScript CSS front-end framework that makes your website look like it's from the 1990s. That would be awesome.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A green screen with a menu. Gopher. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And then sticky positioning so the blue square sticks around, that kind of thing. So anyway, if you're curious, even things like dark mode, you can... Have a, whether something is checked, we'll flip your selectors to the ones that do the dark mode instead of the light mode. So you don't really have to do much beyond pay attention to a property of an HTML element. So that's kind of cool too. So, you know, just if you're curious the kind of things you can get away with, um, with CSS instead of JavaScript, you can check out that article at lexoral.com. And we'll have a link to all these on the show notes and on the YouTube site once uh, the, the video is finalized. Now, going back to uh, JavaScripty things, TypeScript. So anyone doing uh, JavaScript who runs into TypeScript, TypeScript is a typed form of JavaScript. You know, In JavaScript, you create a variable, and you don't put a type on the left-hand side uh, and tell it what type it is. And TypeScript's very goal is to be able to create typed objects and typed variables uh, and create hierarchies of types. So it's a little more like functional-heavy, kind of on the way to Scala, but not really as in-depth as Scala, in the end, it generates plain JavaScript for you to run. So it's a, it, it has a compiler that compiles it into JavaScript. Well, TypeScript has just uh, gone to 4.6, gone to plaid, so to speak, in Spaceballs terms. Uh, but uh, so there's a, a number of features uh, that they put out. Uh, some of them were kind of odd to me as a programmer. For example, allowing code before super in a constructor. Someone must have railed against the fact that you can't you know, when, when you create an inherited class, normally you would call super first and then do your other code. And I know Java is the way that works that way. And JavaScript probably, I'm not sure if it works that way by default, but bottom line is it's usually not before the super call. They're allowing that now. Yeah. Um, so that's one. There's some other really kind of esoteric things. So for example, um, destructuring arguments in certain conditions. So this is like, this is the kind of code TypeScript has. You create types. And that's called a discriminated union type, I believe. So you've got action can either be an object with the property kind with a string constant of number contents. And the second parameter is payload, which is a number. Or the kind can be string contents and the payload is a string. So I don't know why I would write something like this, um, but let's say you would. Um, The way TypeScript used to work is you still had to access it by passing the type in. You couldn't destructure the type into smaller ones. You couldn't do what this sample below is doing, which is turning it into two variables, kind and payload. It couldn't figure those out. So you always had to introspect action.kind to know it's a string with that value. Uh, And you always had to access access access.payload to get it as a a number or a string. So they've done little things like now you can destructure and it will let you work with the types natively when you access the destructured variable. So it's stuff like that. Um, So a lot of small things, a lot of esoteric things. Um, Let's see here. Was there anything else that's specific? Probably nothing that if you haven't done TypeScript before, you would understand as we're talking through this quickly. But um, there is one interesting thing. So as and and Miles has another viewer question. So hold on, Miles. I'll I'll, uh, have you do that in a second. So target ES twenty twenty two. This is this is what I wanted to point out when you asked your question about, you know, JavaScript and TypeScript and you know that kind of thing. Um, TypeScript will target whatever version of JavaScript you want to compile it down to. And in the early days of writing applications, you used to see the target as ES five, which meant like JavaScript in like twenty ten, you know, very very baseline JavaScript that every browser would work with. But it's been moving forward to more and more modern JavaScript. So what it does is it strips the types out after it compiles and checks everything and lets you run in a browser or in Node.js. If you're running on something like Node.js and you're running a completely modern version of Node.js, you could target ES 2022. And that means you would take the types out and some of the things that are natively available in the language would not be emulated in an older version of the code they would actually be using the current language features like the at method on arrays, for example. Uh, There's an has own property on object in ES 2022. Um, There's a cause option on the new error feature. These things are only in ECMAScript 2022. So if you use those in TypeScript, it would emulate those through API calls. But if you target ECMAScript 2022, they would just natively be emitted. So stuff like that anyway if you're doing uh typescript check out 4.6 of typescript and now to something completely different flies
0: yeah so i'm just gonna really quickly go over this yeah go ahead the article if you're interested but they are obviously been studying flies for decades at Drosophila, which if anyone's taken like biology class in high school year they've done stuff with that fly they've done stuff with genetic engineering on that fly because their genome is so small and they're so easy to put to sleep manipulate and wake back up so you can do all sorts of kind of crazy things with these flies but anyway they built a virtual reality gig for this fly that's like tethered from something and hanging and it can still flap its wings and they can emulate heat sources using infrared and i guess it has some sort of you know vision through the virtual reality thing so they're able to basically um, Simulate environments and see how it reacts, and then and, and track uh, neuronal activity and things like that. So they're able to learn more about the fly, and in that, they found out that you know it's a lot more complex than they even thought, and it behaves a lot more like mammals than they realized. So they're a lot smarter than people realize. And we basically every year we find something like, "Hey, flies are smarter than we thought." Um, hopefully, we, we remain smarter than them. But they built a virtual reality gig for a fly. Like I just find that. Crazy. So if you're interested in that and want to read up on like that, and I find things like that very interesting, because they're the intersection of technology and biology, take a look at that article. Um, in fact, do I have it up right now? Can you mention where um, the university and, and the, the people involved are who it's from? What's that now? Can you mention the university that did the study? Who, who it's yeah, from? let me
1: fly up to the top of this. Uh, right. University of California, San Diego, Kavli Institute for Brain and Mind, KIBM.
0: Yeah. So uh, I don't
1: know if that's like a secret code, like it's the IBM of flies. Could it be? You're talking about. Hopefully, we're smarter than flies, which I'm not always sure. Uh, we. Oh, by the way, we have a question um, that I didn't catch. I, I, I it flew by, and uh, there was a question from Huxon uh, Web Dev who asked the first question we had. Uh, what about the performance of TypeScript? Um, So that one, uh, the reason that's interesting to me is uh, TypeScript is just a compiler that turns things into modern JavaScript. So it is no different than the performance uh, of uh, regular native JavaScript, except if you're transpiling to really old versions of JavaScript, you might have non-native code for some of the things that would be native. So I suppose if you're targeting browsers, see what your baseline support of all your browsers will be. And so if it's ECMAScript 2017 or something, set your TypeScript compiling to the most recent version that you, your browsers can all tolerate, just so in case anything is non-native in an older version of JavaScript, um, you know, then you could take advantage of the native versions of those things. That would be the only recommendation I would, I would have.
0: And I guess I have a follow-up question to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of running TypeScript on Node, um what's the performance impact of that or does it compile down to the same thing so it doesn't matter? Ooh, that's
1: a great question because it's two things. so there is an interpreted version called ts node for development, um, I run this a lot. so you just instead of running node, you install ts node and you do ts node blah and you can point it directly against typescript files and it will directly run them. It'll transpile them on the fly and run them. Um, however, I think if you're doing anything you're gonna put in like a you know, a Kubernetes cluster or something like that, and you really want to run it uh, natively, you would do a regular TypeScript compiling process and run the resultant JavaScript. Oh, and then it's the same sense. speed as JavaScript. Yeah, yeah Thank same you. thing.
0: Okay. But I'm and glad think- you
1: brought that up because this is like if you're doing development on TypeScript and you don't want to go through compile cycles to mess with stuff, you could literally fire that up in a REPL and like experiment with TypeScript right there on the fly.
0: Okay.
1: By using I use it in my classes.
0: I think Hux and Web Dev had a question earlier. The question I get Do I have to be a JavaScript expert to start learning React?
1: Mm. Thank you, Huxon, for asking that question. Um, it, it helps. It, I, I wouldn't necessarily say you have to be an expert, but there are a lot of things to learn about JavaScript to just get used to it. I would say take some tutorials, like take a look at the, the React website and spend some time there. There's a lot of good. You know, there's a lot of good step-by-step things there, but it would not hurt to go through, get a copy of JavaScript: The Good Parts. I give you a pointer for that. So, if you get a hold of this book, um, I know it's old, and I know it doesn't cover all the most modern ECMAScript stuff, but it gives you the general, overall way that JavaScript works uh, and how it functions behind the scenes. If you look at that, and you look at a good tutorial on uh, you know, current JavaScript, especially the ones up on, um, on Mozilla, they're pretty good, uh, on JavaScript programming. I would do that as you're learning react. And as you see things you're not used to, start looking things up for sure.
0: Excellent. Good question.
1: Good, good question. Thank you very much. We appreciate your viewership. Awesome. All right. Uh, and then the last weird thing, I don't know why I brought this up. I'm going to make it really quick. Um, but I always like old tech uh, puzzles. So the question is, why does Windows really use backslash as a path separator? And there's a whole bunch of folklore around this. Some people say it came from CPM. Uh, some people came, uh, say it came from uh, uh, Altix or, Lin or Unix, places like that. Um, but it turns out that it came from a very, very old place. I'm just going to make this short because I want to cover our main topic. It came from a very, very odd place. It came from a very old operating system called TOPS 10. And TOPS 10 is a digital equipment corporation uh, operating system in the late 1960s. Uh, it turns out that even uh, the, uh, I, even the um, what is it called? <laughs> MS-DOS Encyclopedia said, that uh, this is back in 1988, that it was uh, modeled after Deck Tops 10 operating system. So we have Digital Equipment Corporation to blame for the backslash.
0: Good old Deck, hallowed be thy name.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, I thought that was kind of fun. I, I like reading weird things like this. So uh, I didn't realize there was a museum to OS2. I don't know. Interesting stuff. All right. Why don't we stop this stuff and why don't we give control to Sujon for the next topic? which we're going to call Kotlin Cooler Than (laughs) K-Pop.
0: Sorry for the silly (laughs) title, guys. Couldn't come up with a better one. So you may be wondering why we're even talking about Kotlin. Kotlin was initially introduced by JetBrains in 2011. So it's been over 10 years now that it's been growing and evolving. And in 2017, Google put all their power behind it as well to adopt it basically as the official language of choice for Android development and supported by Android Studio as well, beyond just IntelliJ, you know, JetBrains ID, et cetera. Um, why are we talking about it now? Well, it's still growing, it's still changing, it's still gaining a lot of uh, I would, you know, is a lot of market share out there. So um, a lot of shops still don't use it. It's still a relatively new thing, especially on the server side for folks. In the Android world, it's been around probably strongly for like the last four or five years. Um, but even in Android shops, not every shop has completely moved over to Kotlin yet. So I think it's still timely to discuss. So anyway, um, Kotlin, like I said, has been around since 2011, really probably started gaining more interest and being more serious contender a few years after that by by the folks from JetBrains. It was born out of an appreciation for Scala um, and the functional aspects of Scala that Java didn't have at the time. Java has much more now than back then. Um, But... Also out of a frustration for Scala compilation times at the time, which was um, extremely like just dog slow. So um, they wanted to build a language and a compiler that could take some of the Scala's concepts but make it much, run much faster. So um, today I'm just gonna go over, there's a lot of things to go over, but a brief overview of what I consider some of the cooler or important parts of Kotlin and just a basic overview so you get some exposure to the language with the hopes that you know, you're gonna wanna dig deeper afterwards um, and you're going to hack around with it and play with it. And you may even consider it as, as a viable language for server-side development. Um, so I'll kind of get into it right now. I think I'm already sharing. So, yep. you know, first and foremost, you know, Kotlin is a language that runs on the JVM. It is bytecode compatible with Java. It compiles right down to good old Java bytecode. Um, you can build a JAR and run it with Java-JAR, um, which I'll get to a little bit later. So for all intents and purposes, once, you, once it's compiled and you have that JAR file, you can treat it like java now if you want to run it on its own you need to include the kotlin runtime with it but it is just general java like anything else in terms of actually running it um and you can use the same tool stack around debugging around heap dumps around garbage collection etc that you can with java so you're not losing anything you've already learned with the java you're already gaining uh, i think it's an important point to note that you don't lose any experience that you've gained if you're a hardcore java developer so just at a basic level you know parts of Kotlin look very similar to Java and Scala. You know, you have packages, you have import statements. Um, What you'll immediately see with um, Kotlin is there's no semicolons. Semicolon must be like one of the most hated things in technology. It deserves its own like altar or something that people can like, can rip (laughs) down because everyone hates it. And and that's like the first thing people tout about newer languages. It doesn't have a semicolon. Um, Back in
1: Groovy, it was like that. And Ruby. Yeah, Exactly.
0: Um, so, you got, you know, immediately you're going to see some uh, differences in syntax like that. Um, you're going to see like uh, functions, uh, the keyword is fun, F-U-N, uh, not D-E-F like Scala. And, um, you know, you don't have one for, for Java. It's just like you know, the public, private, protected modifiers, et cetera, and return types. Um, next thing you'll notice is that um, for arguments and, and types, the type is specified after the identifier. Um, same with Scala. Um, and you'll have generics as well, so that's another thing. And then very quickly, you know, a lot of this is going to look like Scala because you're going to see, again, you have a return type that shows up after the function. Um, You can have single-line functions that don't have curly braces, so they're almost like expressions, um, and I'll get into more of that later. You have values and variables, so you can have values which are immutable and immediately assigned, uh, and they don't change once they're assigned. Uh, They're not... Like compile time constants, which are similar to values, but you can use a constant keyword and in a general style is all ca- all caps, um, and you define that upfront. That gets statically compiled into the code um, as a constant, which is then you know takes mem- memory once in use throughout the code. You have immutable values here, and then you have variables, which are like Java variables uh, that can change. Um, you can specify the type. We cannot specify the type and Kotlin has type inferencing. So it tries to figure out the type based off the literal or the um, at at run you know at compile time, I should say, right? Not runtime. So it does type inferencing at compile time. So it has to be able to resolve it. Otherwise you'd get an error um, and I'll get more to that later. Uh, classes look very similar, except that you have constructors that are the default constructor can be part of the, uh, I should say the primary, not default, the primary constructor can be part of the class declaration. So, um, and you can have values and variables as well. So these become properties of the class. In this case, they're mutable properties you can change because they're vowels, vars. Um, You can have vowels, which means um, you would not be able to change those later on. You could override them in subclasses. Um, Anyway, and I guess finally, one quick thing to mention is string template. So you have much lighter weight syntax around string templating. You can have arbitrary uh, code code expressions within your strings um, that start with a dollar sign you know you can just have dollar sign here for a value and normal quoting, and then you can have um more complex expressions with dollar sign and curly braces, which is similar to other languages out there as well so that saves some saves some boilerplate some et-, et cetera stuff that you would have to do in java um anyway uh next thing I want to briefly touch upon is basic types so again similar to Java you have byte short int long you have booleans um and you have characters uh Again, he tries to use type inferencing and by default um, with any fractional numbers Kotlin uses double. It does not choose float. It'll automatically choose double in that case. You'd have to explicitly sp- specify um, in the literal like F if you want it to be a float, uh, things like that. Uh, let's see. So you have literal constants, like I'd mentioned earlier which can be immutable vowels. Um, actually, I think I was wrong about the const keyword. You can just use a vowel with the right styling uh, for constants. Uh, you can do explicit conversions of, of your type. So with Java, it, it can automatically do widening widening type and error and type, It doesn't do that with uh, Kotlin. You'd have to be very explicit about it. So uh, types are not implicitly converted to bigger types. So if I have a byte here with one, I can't just assign that to an int and, and have that work. Like I said, that would be an error by the compiler. You actually have to convert it. An, in, so it's, it's more explicit in that regard, which um, I don't know how I feel about that. I tend to prefer being more explicit over implicit. So I, I actually think it's a good thing that you have to understand how those conversions work. So there's no like corner cases or nasty bugs that happen that, that kind of just go, go away silently. Um, you have operations, et, et cetera, et cetera, kind of similar to similar Java. Uh, you have the same comparison operators, the bit shifting operators are different. So they actually use uh, kind of the word like shift left, shift right, SHL, SHR, instead of like arcane operators, which many folks are admittedly used to by now. But again, I think they try to choose to be more explicit than implicit, which I think is a good language design goal. And I, I'm kind of glad that they chose that. Um, I think it makes it makes it easier to read code for folks that are new to some of these things and makes it look less arcane. Um, then there's a whole section on unsigned types. I'm going to move on. So... Um, Thing equality is always very important to cover. Uh, you have structural and referential equality. So structural equality is like you know Java double equals. It's going to use the equals method to determine if two instances instances are equal, right, of the same type or you know in the same class hierarchy. Referential equality uses triple equals to determine if the two things are actually the same reference that you're pointing to in memory. Um, that's really all I'm going to say about that. Um, Null safety is is a big thing in JVM, right? You know, Clojure has a thing, Scala has their thing, Java famously doesn't really have that much on it. All the newer versions of Scala have option and things like that. What Kotlin did is um, it allows you to actually specify, you know, you can, so let me, before I get to that, you can still specify null, you can use a null keyword and you can say something is null. But to actually allow nulls, um, what you can do is use the question mark at the end of the type specifier, which says, hey, this value can be, this variable or value can be null. Um, if you look at the example above, it would be a compilation error to assign null to a variable or a value that actually is not, does not have that question mark specifier. So you can actually be very clear about your intent. I can either allow nulls or not nulls and the compiler is gonna let me know, or the runtime, you know, the compiler is gonna let me know if I actually explicitly set null or if it can determine that what is being set is null um what you can do with this is some cool things now that you've said hey it's okay to be null is you can check for null conditions like you did before with the you know not equals null etc um, you can do safe calls where you can say um here b is a type string which a nullable string and you can do b question mark dot length so if it's null it won't come back with anything right and if it's if it's not null, you'll get a value. So it's like a safe call. And I, if I correct me if I'm wrong, uh, does TypeScript have this? Has the, what the, um
1: the, yes, the it does the optionality.
0: Levels. Right.
1: Yeah, you would put it next to the variable name in an argument, okay. but not in a plain old variable. Gotcha. It okay. doesn't like have that kind of thing.
0: Okay. Okay, interesting. Um, by
1: the way, there was a quick question. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> okay. We answered one of them, but it was a, uh, uh, comments uh, also from Hux and web dev um, was uh, Kotlin code sounds like Golang code. I mean, look at the function declaration. So like some of the syntaxes I even see TypeScript has a lot of the same syntax things. they all all these languages kind of leapfrog each other and take yeah. from each other. So yeah, it's,
0: its definitely similar to um, golang in that sense. Golang has some interesting things like you can specify in and out parameters. yeah, um, you can specify multiple return values so you can like essentially like tuple you can send back multiple things you can send back a value and potentially an error code so Kotlin doesn't have multiple return values or being able to specify in and out parameters but yeah there's uh, definitely similar
1: things. and while we're at it um he also said do i need to know java to work with kotlin i would think you probably want to know the basics
0: i would say that where Java, you don't have to know java to learn Kotlin mm-hmm. from scratch you can absolutely just start kotlin from scratch where it helps to have Java knowledge is like the APIs and the frameworks. So yeah. like when you get to using um, a framework like Spring or something, and then you wanna use some existing j- libraries out there, many of which are written in Java, it certainly helps to have that j- Java knowledge, be able to drop down to Java, modify Java code and debug Java code.
1: Class so paths and things like that too, yeah. yeah.
0: So it's not a blocker. Um, you can certainly learn Kotlin. Um, so don't be afraid if you haven't done Java, but you're interested in Kotlin. Absolutely, go ahead and learn it. I'll provide some links at the end of this on where you can start. Um, but it, it does help. Cool. Uh, all right. And then you can you can even do things like multiple safe calls. So you have this Bob question mark dot department dot question mark dot head dot. So you can dereference potentially nullable uh, variables and chain them that way and still do it safely. Um, it also has the Elvis operator, where, um, for for if you're trying to check if something's null, like I mentioned earlier, and say if it's not null, do something, and if else if it's null, do this. You can do that with a, uh, this you know b question mark dot length, and they, which itself is a null safe call, and then you can do question mark colon. Um, so if this is null, it will return negative one. If this was not null, it'll return the length and assign that to l.
1: That that operator comes all the way back from even in Groovy, they call it the Elvis operator. Yep. So, so again, more to the point of like all these languages leapfrogging and taking from each other, which I think is a great thing.
0: Yeah. Now I don't know when this is supposed to end. I'm not even close to being done. So keep, going. Let me know keep what going. We're, we're good. Okay. we're good.
1: Cool. If you got the time? We got the beer. Woohoo! <laughs> um,
0: there's a double exclamation point operator, which is interesting. So in this, in all of these cases so far, for folks that have done Java, they may have noticed although I'm going fast, is I haven't mentioned null pointer exceptions because every one of these things I've been talking about have been safe invocations, right? You're trying to safely check whether it's null or not and and deal with it appropriately. So you're trying to avoid null pointer exceptions. Well, if you actually truly want a null pointer exception, um, you know, and I can see that being important for data, you don't know where it's coming from or dealing with other libraries that are Java, et cetera. um, You can actually use this uh, bang, bang operator that if it's null, you actually will, it'll actually throw a null pointer exception. And I totally forgot to put this in my list of things, but here, I'll just mention it here. Kotlin does not have checked exceptions. So if you're coming from Java, you have checked and unchecked exceptions. You have things that extend from exception, which are checked and things that extend from runtime exception, which are unchecked in Kotlin, they're all unchecked exceptions. So you don't have to have an explicit try catch block to to catch that specific exception, which um, I tend to prefer. Right. We leave it up to the yeah. developer and the API designer to figure out how they want to deal with it and what they want to do instead of forcing everyone to have to constantly deal with it and bubble it up every time.
1: And to your point, like Spring is also massively unchecked, exception yeah. uh, friendly. So Kotlin and Spring, I'm sure you're getting to that. That's a good combination, I would think.
0: Yeah. Um, now, um, I'm going to get into functions in Lambdas. Next, uh, actually, I'll get into functions first, and I may I may skip to lambdas after that, and come back to classes and data classes. So, another another great thing about Kotlin is functions are really first class citizens, like other function and functional programming languages you may have used. So, you, I, I think a lot of people in the industry have just come to assume and accept and expect that functions are first class citizens, and that you can pass them around like 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 you know data almost. So, um, again, you'll notice there's a fun keyword. You have the function name, you have the argument list, which can be empty or not empty. Uh, You have the types after the identifiers and you have the return type after the function. And then you still have a return statement. Um, You call them just like you would do in Java or Scala. Um, Your parameters, you can have default arguments, which is nice. So you can specify that the argument has a default value. Um, You can even have the default arguments refer to other arguments within the uh, parameter list, which is nice as well. Um, you can, uh, we haven't got to this, but if you were overriding a a function in a subclass, so um, you'll see this here and I'll get into it later, but you can have class hierarchies, you can have subclasses and you can override uh, parameters as well. So in this case is default is 10, but you can override that in the subclass to not provide a default at all. Um, You can have named arguments um, as well. So you can refer to them that way. So here I have, you know, same thing I did before. But then um, when I'm refer- sorry, I was looking at the wrong block. So here's your argument list this reformat function. Um, this is going to sound very, very familiar to folks that are familiar with other languages. But this just kind of shows like, hey, why is he calling this stuff cool? Um, because when you're coming from Java, a lot of these things were newer or novel. Um, so things weren't available for Java developers. so A lot of times they were kind of salivating other languages or newer languages like, hey, I want this too. Now Java has improved by leaps and bounds since what I'm talking about, but um, there's still a lot that Kotlin has that Java doesn't have yet. So you're able to um, refer to arguments by, by name, which um, when, you're, when you're building DLS, DSL type-ish things or just trying to enhance code readability for longer parameter list, one question why you have a long parameter list, is it really necessary? or not. Um, so this allows you to make things a lot more readable. Uh, one thing to, I think, quickly mention here, and then I'll move on, is uh, the unit return type. So Scala has this too. So if you're the thing with functional programming languages, you have functions that produce side effects and functions that don't produce side effects. So a function that pr- produces a side effect means it's changing something, right? It's changing memory, or it's changing um, is sending something on a socket or is writing something out to standard output. So it's doing something that changes for all intents and purposes, memory or the state of the program in a way, right? So, um, but a function that does not do that, does not output something, does not change memory, just returns a value. Um, It it is called side effect free. And you can denote that by having the return type as unit. Meaning in this case, this, um, it's funny because I would not, this is a bad example, in my opinion, and I think it's worth it. I would not use, I, to me, doing something to standard out is sending, is changing state. It is, it's not side effect, it's actually producing a, a side effect. Um,
1: Output stream mutation, yeah, addition.
0: So, you know, I, I, we can talk about this more later, but uh, in, 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 for Kotlin, right, if you don't return a value that's useful, use unit, right? Um, and that can produce side effects, it may not produce value. Whereas if I'm just saying like, hey, compute the the square f- square root or something, you pass in value, get the square root out. To me, that's side effect free, but it's producing a value. Um, so side so units are for side actually units are for side effects. I think it's flipped that around. Um, so this is producing a side effect, but not returning a value. Um, this I've been up since six a.m. this morning. So,
1: that's why, um, <laughs> so you return unit basically, or or it has a unit quote unquote return, if it does something internally that yeah. could change state or a side effect or something. Right. Whereas yeah. if it's a pure function, you wouldn't return anything or you, we return the well, value. You want confusing
0: all our viewers. I told to the club. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. Yeah. yeah. So unit is when you're doing something, but not returning a useful value. So it's like, Hey, I produced a side effect like print line, right? It's writing something standard out. Um, whereas if you just have a value to return, then you provide the return type. But in those cases you're, the, the idea is you shouldn't be producing other side effects right um, now. Where, where, you kind of draw, where you kind of bend that rule is logging, right? Logging is, is a side effect, but you wanna log certain methods. So maybe, but you, know, you cleanly leave certain functions without log statements, but the thing that's calling it logs out the value so that your side effect free functions don't have logging statements in there, but that's a discussion for another day. Um, you can have single expression functions as well without curly braces um, and variable argument lists, okay. I'm going to quickly go over classes because this is going to be familiar to a lot of people, but again you denote it with class. Um, you can have either a constructor like this or you can specify actually constructor so if you have multiple constructors, you have to use the constructor keyword in Kotlin to specify the secondary tertiary etc constructors. Um, your primary constructor can be actually right right after the class name um, and you can have uh, things here, you can also have uh, values or variables. So you can specify something immutable or immutable. Um, you can have, um, you can't, your constructor in this case, would be like, well, where do I put the body of that constructor? You can't have a body in that case. And what you, what, what you do do is you have property initializers and initializer blocks. And they execute in the order that you see them here before anything else um, happens in the class. So uh, if I were to instantiate in it order demo, it would run all of this first, essentially as part of this in order demo constructor.
1: Feels like a uh, very Scala-like in that regard to me, but I'm not deep into Scala.
0: Right. It, it is, yeah, it is. Um, yeah. you can have immutable and mutable variables, so vowels and uh, variables again. Right. Uh, You've a secondary constructor, so I have one constructor here. Like here, the, there's a automatically a default Noir constructor that gets generated by Kotlin, even if you don't specify it for interoperability with Java and things like Spring, et cetera. Um, But in this case, it's the constructor specified after the fact. So you have this here. So if the class has a primary constructor, each secondary constructor needs to delegate to the primary, just like before. So you have to call by using this. Um, You don't, and I get, you don't have to use a new keyword. Kotlin does not have a new keyword. So to instantiate a a class into an object, you just do something like this. You just call the class with the parameter list for the constructor. Okay. Um, And there's abstract classes, interfaces, et cetera. Um, And I guess finally, companion objects. So where in Java, you have static methods and static uh, variables. Um, In Kotlin, you have a companion object, which you specify, generally speaking, at the end of the class stylistically. Um, The companion object has what you would consider the static values and methods that live along with that class, but it's actually an instance, right? And then you can refer to that companion object um, with the class name. And if you need to refer to the companion directly, you can do class name dot com, you know, dot, you can, dot .companion. Wow.
1: That's very, yeah, very Scala-like right there. They have companion objects too.
0: So I'll just quickly, I guess, show that. So you have companion object here. You can name it or you can leave it unnamed. If mm-hmm. it's unnamed, it's just companion with the uppercase C as the name. If not, you use the name um, and then you can refer to that, okay? So one of the big things that people have been asking for for many years in Java are record types. So that being like, imagine a, a simple Java bean with setters and getters. Um, in Java, you have to specify the setter methods, You have to specify the getter methods. You have to specify equals and hash code and two string. We all know this that have come from the Java world. You know, in Scala, you have case classes. Java 16 and up, you have record classes now, which do this as well. Java, in Java 14, it was a preview feature that you could enable with a compiler um, command line option. But in Java 16 and above, you have record classes. Um, with Kotlin, you have data classes. So they're immutable, um, basically immutable data structures. So you specify your properties here like you would with a normal class and constructor, but you have the data keyword, um, and then it does equals and hash code to string. It also provides a copy function with Java doesn't, so you can create copies of this easily by just calling copy. Um, you can also get each of the separate uh, properties by a component ending like component one, component two, where that essentially gets used as in destructuring. You can. You can assign a, a, a data class and separate out the properties into individual variable names and assign them that way by destructuring um again you can have uh immutable and and you can have mutable variables in the actual class now what happens here so you have a data class person you have val name saying i have an immutable name which is a property of person i also have a var property which will generate setters and getters right in the case of value it for uh, for properties that are only values, I didn't mention it earlier, it only generates getters. Um, for variables, it generates setters and getters. Um, however, anything specified outside of this parameter list here, um, argument list, is not part of the equals to string, hash code, etc. It is just part of that class of separate data, but it doesn't get in considered for equality, um, things like that. So that's an important point to note. You can copy them, and like I mentioned earlier, you can destructure. So if I have, Name and age, Jane, I can destructure that into separate name and age um, things, which can come in handy when you're doing things like, you know, in this case, printing things out, or you're sending data back to another API you don't control that doesn't accept the user type, but you have to separate it out or to create an, an instance of another type um, for, for compatibility. Uh, uh, so that, that's like a big thing where there's a whole swath of code that kind of gets thrown away if you can use data classes and ensure immutability there. Um, we so have a question that came up real quick sure so um, what about this is
1: hux and web dev also uh, what is the, about the control flow I mean conditional statements and looping and such like I know probably a lot of that it comes from Java but there yes, are so, some new
0: structures right you're going to cover or yeah I'm going to cover that in a, in, a, in a few minutes if, okay, if we great. can hold on to that okay yeah the order. The order doesn't make perfect sense from like, hey, I'm not going the order of like the natural basic types of a language. I was trying to pick some of the, what I thought were differences of Java, Um, and then I'll get back to that because it's very, uh, that's actually important when we come to expressions, which is different than Java. Awesome. So what I was saying earlier about functions being first class citizens in Kotlin, um, where you can essentially assign them to variables and pass them around. So... (laughs) In Kotlin, you can have higher-order functions. A higher-order function is something that re- is a function that can either accept functions or return functions, so you can actually create new functions. So for ex- uh, I'm not going to go through that example because that, that's a little bit complicated to get into folding and combining. But um, the idea being is I can pass code blocks here. So like I have this fold method, and I'm passing a named parameter, a, an accumulator function, and I'm passing a um, what in JavaScript become the arrow function, I have parameters and I have an arrow here, and then I have the body of the function. So I can pass functions to functions. Um, in this case, a function will be returned. Um, so if I do items.fold here, I have a join to string uh, function as well. So function types are actual types in, in Kotlin. So I can have, if a function takes an integer and turns a string, its type is into string. Um, let me show a few code examples here. So that'll actually drive the point home. Uh, so I can have a you know I can have a value and I can again on click button handler and I can assign it well it's not going to take anything and it's going to produce some side effect uh, and then you can s- specify that body um, so you have the function you have the parameter list return type um, and then you have the body so um, let's see here like int function it takes an integer and returns an integer and I can ass- and I can take a if you notice here I can take a previous function um, and assign it to that. In this case this class here which is interesting right the class itself has a type of int to int so i can specify classes that override the invoke function and then i can actually create that as a first class and, and then assign that to another value and then i can invoke that like i would a function um, i can in, do that direct all of this can be done directly via just the curly braces where you can specify the argument um, and then this return and it'll, inf- it'll do type inference to re- infer the return type in this case. And now I can invoke a directly and pass it in integer. Um, so you can see you have some pretty um, powerful things here where I can just specify the lambda directly. Um, I can have one parameter, I can have multiple parameters. Um, in this case, this function is returning a function, right? It's actually saying, hey, return F hello three, which will build another function. And then I can call that directly. Um, there's a lot of stuff here, so I'm not going to get into all of it. Um, sure. This is a big difference from Java in terms of higher order functions and function types and being able to pass them around just like we did with everything else. So this is a syntax where you have the vari- the value, the name, the rich- the function type, which is all of this, and then the actual function body. Um, but another big thing is trailing lambdas. So if your last argument in a function is a trailing is a lambda, um, where let me show you an example of this. So if, if my last Thing with returning, if I was specifying a function type, I can just pass a Lambda directly. So for this fold method, which we, which we briefly saw earlier, where it said, hey, this combined thing says, I'm gonna take something of type R, something of type T. Uh, Kotlin has generics, but I'm not gonna get into that today. That's too much to cover. Um, but I'm specifying a, a argument and a function type here. And since that's the last argument, I can send that directly and just say, hey, run with this or fold with this. So it's much lighter weight makes it look like almost D- DSL ish type um, like Scala and Ruby and other languages out there. And, and, and I, I believe JavaScript or TypeScript as well.
1: Um, we have a question that might be sure. somewhat useful at this point.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: this one is, can you destructure from Robert Roberto Gutierrez Guerra? Can you destructure in a non-positional yet? I like think the positional destructuring matters, at least as a few years ago when I was using Kotlin.
0: That's a good question. I don't know the the answer to that. I, I would expect that it still is the way it was several years ago, but we'll have to end, we'll have to get back to you and answer like that. Like at the end or something yeah. like that. Is that generally how it is? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I believe. Okay. Um, again, you have collection methods. which I'm not going to get into like map, filter, reduce, et etc. But mm-hmm. here's where kind of lambda shine. Where it's still not as lightweight in Java, even with the streams collection of the API, where I can just pass a curly braced lambda using it to re- it to refer to the argument that's being passed in. So filter yeah. this, sorted by this, map this, so um, much lighter weight. If I have multiple arguments, like map, you have a key and a value. So if I have a hash map for each, I, I can ignore the key with an underscore or say like key or something, give it a name. And then say value, you know, and then say, okay, here are the two arguments. And this is what I want it to happen in this case. It's a side, side effect function to saying just do print line. Um, it's
1: definitely more elegant syntax for sure.
0: Yeah. And then you can have anonymous function as well. So I don't even need to name the function. I can just do this directly. Cool. And then refer to that within. And so I can like organize my code with more complex functions without having to reuse that function if I n- have no use for it again after that invocation. Anyway. Um, so there's a lot to look at there. Um close this. Close that. Uh, so the question earlier about control flow, right? So we're there now. So control flow is... Similar to Java in the sense that you have if, you have while, you have do while, um, you have if else, et cetera. Um, the difference is that uh, in Kotlin, you have expressions. So your if statement can have a type. It can return a value. So um, let me give you an example. Of so this is where it's, it's the same, right? If A less than B, you know, do max equals B. That's, a, that's not returning a value. That's assigning. So that, that's causing a side effect and assigning something to a value. Same here. Um, here is where it's used as an expression. If A is greater than B, give me back A, else B. Now I'm assigning this statement or this expression, I should say, to val max. So in this case, it's an int. The type of this expression is int. So it gets resolved to int by the compiler and returned back. And um, basically, what that does <laughs> is it saves boilerplate code of having to first separate that out and then put it to somewhere and then assign it somewhere else. I can now have. Uh, one line expressions like this, or I can have a function where the, the body of the function is just conditional, right? Because a conditional is an expression and that you can return the the result of this expression, um, which makes things quite nice. Um, I can do cool things like this too, where I can have some complex code where I have, if A, B, do some side effecting stuff, like print something out or log something or write something out, but hey, return a value too. So then it, this gets assigned to max so now. Be careful with stuff like this. You don't want to get too complicated or to do a lot of things that make it hard to debug later, Um, but you can. So in this case, the final value in the block is what becomes the type and return value of that expression. Um, Very similar to Scala. Um, The cool thing that uh, Kotlin has is when, which is like the switch statement in Java, like the case stuff in in Scala, but it doesn't have pattern matching like Scala does, so nowhere near as powerful. Um, but more powerful than Java. So if you notice here right off the bat, you have when, I have the value I'm testing, and then I have a block. Um, I can have the value here, an arrow, and then something happening, or else as of the fallback. Uh, this entire thing can be an expression. So I can return values instead as well, just like with the if. Um, you can have en- you have enums and Kotlin, so you can have kind of exhaustive matches where if you know that there's only zero and one, you can specify 0 and 1, But no else. Um, You can leave that out, uh, and I can make invocations in here, so I can call something within the when, and then test it. Uh, Trying to find an example of where it's a a value rather than expression. So um, all of these are if I can do things like uh, different types. I can have multiple values in the same clause. Um, I can do things like uh, ranges. So I didn't get to Kotlin ranges. Uh, I have one to ten. If it's between one and t- in 1 and 10, do this. If it's in another range, do this. If another not in a range, do this. Um, I can do things like is, so I can do type checks. If it's string, do this. If it's int, do this. I can make method calls. If it's odd and returns a Boolean, do this. Even return a Boolean, do this. Uh, this is where it's an example of both a expression uh, or a capture. And so I can do when. I can, capture, I can make an, an invocation call. And I can capture that into a value. And then I can refer to that value in the when. So I can do, if it's success, do this. If it's error, do this. In this case, my function, this, this is nice, right? So this is doing a bunch of things that's showing you in, in, in um, Kotlin. Um, I'll get to this syntax later. They're called Kotlin extensions. Uh, I have a single line a single line method. So uh, function, I have no uh, curly braces, just an equal statement. So it's an expression function. I have a when that captures a uh calls an invocation and captures a value. And then it returns a value. In this case, either an exception or the return. And if you notice, there's no return keyword here, right? It's just the value of this becomes a function. So it's a lot less boilerplate, a lot cleaner and easier to read, in my opinion. Um, and then you Yeah, also- if you did that
1: in Java, that would be about nine lines. <laughs> exactly. It's you know, for the same um, thing.
0: Are there other, uh, before I go ahead, Were there other questions?
1: Nope. So uh, wait a minute, hold on. There might be one. Oh, the concept of this and self. Is there anything goofy with this, or is it the um, same as Java semantics? It's
0: it is a little bit different. Um, I'll let me table that, and I'll get back. I'll go back to classes, and I'll and I'll show that at the end. Cool. Thanks. Sure. Absolutely. Um, you have for loops like you do in, in Java, and, and uh, like you do for each in C Sharp. Um, you can do item in a collection, um, which you know it's a. Now, just to quickly go over this, folks that are Java will be familiar with this or not. You know, if it's if it's basically iterable it means it has an iterator, it has a next and a has next. Um, if your if if your class implements that and has those methods, then it can participate in this sort of syntax, right? Um, in uh, Kotlin, has numeric ranges where you can do ranges like this. You can do ranges like six down to something or up to I something. like that DSL. That's very
1: cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and you can just do that directly within. Um, and then you have while loops, and then you have break and continue as well. And you can have labeled break and continue. That's kind of a little more advanced I won't get to. You can break and continue and say, well, break to this or continue to this if you have nested constructs. Um, All right, so I think that's that. All right. Um, Another really nice thing actually in Kotlin is operator overloading. Um, Java does not have this. So uh, if I want to be able to overload the arithmetic operators, the um, array indexing um, operator for setting getting, you can do that. And this page will provide you like what the actual um, uh, what the oh. operator is when you're calling, when you're using it in code, but what the method name has to be when you're actually declaring the overloading. Oh, that's really
1: cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very
0: readable in that case. Yeah. Um, and standardized. Yeah, absolutely. standardized. Exactly. So you have plus, minus, you have unary, um, you have the increment, decrement, ink and dec. That's you have awesome. Binary plus, minus range to you even have the range. So, you can cre- You can do some really cool stuff with this. Um,
1: if you the, don't if have them, is the default to just like throw an error or something, or do what object does? I, uh, I'm throwing a curveball
0: at you, but yeah. Oh, so you're saying if you don't if you don't overload, but you try to use it? Yeah. Um, it'll have a compilation error because the method. That's won't what I would fun. think. Yeah.
1: But that's All really right. cool. So you just add the ones you know you're going to support, and that's it. You don't have to do any other boilerplate right. around it. That's really um, great.
0: Has the the contain? You can have a contains operator as well. You can do all sorts of this is really cool I mean you can do um, array operators right for, for getting and setting, which is really nice so you, you can have some pretty powerful um, oh, that's great uh, API's for your classes that way um, same with in, in, invoking so you can actually overload you, you can overload the invoke operator for invoking functions um, and different types of assignments so a lot this is a lot of stuff here, but it's really powerful depending on what you're trying to do. Um, No, let me just see. Okay, yeah. So I'm on my last topic. Um, Right now, there's so much more to Kotlin, but I think I was trying to hit some of the heavy hitters. So extension methods. Um, If you want to be able to add methods to a class post facto after the class has already been defined or it's a class that you didn't provide and you're using from a library, um, you can do this syntax where you have function, you have the type, right, that you're talking about, the the thing that you want to extend, dot the function. So in this case, I'm adding a swap method to mutable list of 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 type integer, right? For the generic integer. And now I can... That um, is cool. Kotlin yes. has list built collection builder methods, um, which you can get, get into if you look at the, the documentation. But now I can call swap, right? So um, this is called the receiver type. This is called the extension method. Got it. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, That's the really added, cool. By the way, not at runtime. That's a very important point. So okay. they it, it looks at the... Static run, uh, the static compile time type, not the runtime virtual type. So, like if I, you know, with polymorphism, your runtime type may be different than your uh, compile time type. Like if I have shape, well, it may be a rectangle, but the compiler is going to think it's a shape. So, it's going to look at the compile time static type, not the run type, um, which this example demonstrates. Um, But again, in this case, I'm extending um, the shape class and the rectangle class with their own get name methods after the fact. Now, Here it looks a little silly because I'm also defining the class here. Why don't I just put it within the class itself? This is a case where you don't don't have control over this, you'd have to imagine, right? Um, And you want to add something to it um, so you don't have to keep passing in a class instance and calling it separately. This way you can just call it directly. So things like extension methods and operator overloading um, can make your code a lot cleaner, can make it a lot more readable and allows you a lot more flexibility in building APIs, in my opinion, um, when you're interoperating with other, other APIs or frameworks out there. Um, uh, you can even have a nullable receiver. So you can have a, like this any two string, and then you can check if it's null, return null, if not return two string. So you can check for null safety within, the, within this extension method as well, which is pretty cool. Finally, you can do, I know there's a question, so I'll, I'll stop in a second. Um, you can do this with properties as well. So you can have extension properties. So, there's a, um, I can add a last index property to the list, to the list type in, in Kotlin. And this is for all list types, right, of, of any uh, generic type. In this case, you notice I'm not giving it a function body, right, I'm just saying get equals size minus one. So in Kotlin, you can, I didn't, I didn't get to this today, but you can specify getters and setters specifically but with the get and set keywords. Um, so you can control what you wanna expose for a property, um, whether you want a private setter and a public getter or you know, or vice versa, et cetera, so you can do that directly. Um, so I'll stop there, that was, that was a lot of stuff, I'll answer any other questions, but I think um, if, you know, if you wanna get into Kotlin, best place to start is kotlinlang.org, docs, home.html, and we'll post links to all of these things and some other resources. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff on here about trying it out, about how to install it and how to, it has, you know, Kotlin has a REPL, so you can test out things on a REPL directly um, just by typing the Kotlin uh, command. You can, um, there's cones, which are like mini exercises that you can go through to learn a language or a concept. So there's Kotlin cones that go through all the concepts I talked about. Um, And you can learn that, um, you can play with that online or you can do it on your own. So there's a playground it provides um, like this. Um, You can use either... IntelliJ IDE, or you can do it right in here. So there's an entire thing here, the exercises here where you type it, and then here's a description or explanation of what's going on. So, really great way to just get started if you want to get your feet wet. Um, uh, I like the show answer upside down. That's
1: really cute. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> like the old comic book things, you know? <laughs> um, right. And then oh, I
0: think finally, you know, the, the Kotlin I mentioned earlier, Kotlin compiles down to Java. It's just a Java jar. Right. Anywhere where you can use a Java jar, you can write Kotlin, produce a jar, and compile it and run it. So um, you really can do a lot of stuff that you can do with Java. You can use Kotlin in Spring Boot. I can write Kotlin server side and write Kotlin microservices. Um, AWS Lambda, if you're doing serverless stuff on the cloud, supports Kotlin as a language as well. Um, it's really no different. It's just, it's just a jar. Uh, and uh, that, to me, and then Android, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of the de facto. Android is a little interesting because they, they, they shoehorn you into Java 8. You can't use newer versions of Java. Um, so if you're just writing in Java, there's so many new features you can't take advantage of because Android supports Java 8. But if you're using Kotlin, you're getting all, a lot of these things. Kotlin's at 1.6, by the way, right now. But you get a lot of features out of Kotlin. Um, it's not beholden to that right? because it can compile d- down to bytecode that's compatible with Java 8 and forward. Um, Oh, that's that's pretty
1: cool. cool. Okay, so you can use all these language features, even though you might be running on a
0: uh, Android 1.8 Java version, so to speak. That's correct. And um, IntelliJ, if you're using IntelliJ, and if you're like, hey, I wrote this piece of Kotlin, what does it look like in Java? Or if you need to understand, if you're a Java person, understand how it works, Um, you can decompile down the You can show Kotlin bytecode. You can also decompile to see the Java code that it would produce. Um, and it uses a open source library. Let me just put the link here, uh, give me one sec. Uh, thanks for bearing with me, guys. Uh, mm-hmm. Burnflower, which is what IntelliJ uses as well to do the decompilation. So if you're interested in how that works or what it's doing be- under the hood, take a look at a decompiler here. So kind of uh, give credit to them, that's pretty cool. And that's actively maintained. Um, finally, two things is JetBrains has a great channel as well. And they have episodes. They have a good video. JetBrains Connect is episode four. We'll put the link to it. Why Kotlin with Bruce Eckel and Svetlana Isakova. Um, those who know Bruce Eckel know he's an, he's you know, I think. Has he spoken at ET before? He has. He's speaking this year, too, with uh, oh. yeah, well, James Ward and Bruce Eckel are both uh, going to be there. Okay. That's awesome. So you great video on why would you choose Kotlin? I highly recommend watching that. Um, finally, we have had Kotlin related talks at ET in the past and people that we've invited to speak. So, um, if you were to, this is a search on Kotlin, um, where I search for Kotlin. If you go to the cherry solutions, YouTube and search for Kotlin, you'll see talks that are, uh, have talk about Kotlin. And the search actually is fun. Interesting. It searches, Comments in 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 the discussions as well on the YouTube video So you may get some things that are where the talk is not about Kotlin, but someone asked about it or there was a discussion around it Um, I didn't realize how much how much of a discussion some of these videos had Ken, after the fact on the YouTube comments They're pretty interesting.
1: It's nuts. Yes. We appreciate them all and they're great. Uh, We have some really really good viewers that ask good questions
0: Um, So yeah, um, I highly recommend people to take a look at Kotlin. Give it a spin play around with it Um, I, I Especially if you're like on that fence of well, do I want to stick with a JVM? Do I want to move away from Java and you haven't looked at this? take a look at it. It may it may change your opinion about that whole ecosystem.
1: All right, great. Okay, so let's uh, I guess uh, kind of wrap up here. So um, on my end, let me see if I can share back on my screen here. Thank you, miles. Uh, okay, so then, just to kind of finish this up, uh, just remember, uh, if you if you like the show, head over to twitter.com slash techcast if you want to know how to subscribe to it. You can certainly like and subscribe on YouTube, which is the easy way if you consume things there. Or if you have a podcatcher and you want to listen to the show, this one was definitely not a listen to show, right? This is definitely a let's look at the video. But uh, well, we have a lot of them where we just debate things and talk about news, and they're great to digest while you're driving um so that's certainly you can grab it from you know your regular podcast or whatever you use for it and that's all the information there again check out our blog check out our youtube channel but just remember, also, if you're looking for a gig and you like working with uh, people who are challenged all every day by technology, enjoy learning new things. As you saw from Sue John with with his Kotlin talk and me talking about all sorts of obtuse TypeScript things, um, you know, certainly we we apply technology to solve problems every day, and we are always looking for good people. So the, head over to chariotsolutions.com/slash/careers, and take a look at our open positions. Um, you know, if we pop at that right now, we're, we're so we're aggressively
0: keep- growing and hiring. So, you know, for yep. back-end position, Java, Python, Kotlin, Node.js, Go, Land, Clojure. We're hiring for mobile, iOS, Android, again, Swift and Kotlin, um, data engineers, uh, front-end React, Angular. So please take a look.
1: Definitely check it out. All right. That's it then. So thank you very much for hanging in with us. I saw the, I love the engagement we had this time. We really appreciate it. If you want, you can hit us up on that Twitter uh, at TechCast if you'd like to post a comment for later or encourage other people to subscribe. We always love getting more people watching our show. Uh, and uh, certainly you can hit us up in the chat anytime you want to ask a question during the show. We will uh, pay attention to that and try to answer it the best we can.
0: And So I, we'll see you. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, Just quickly for the two questions mm-hmm. the per- uh, one person asked. So Kotlin um, yeah. still has positional-based destructuring. They don't have name-based destructuring and they don't have plans on doing that. So the position matters um, for the arguments on the for the parameters you specify on the left side that you want to assign to it has to match the order. Um, and actually, I will I will respond regarding this keyword in offline because that's just a, a longer conversation.
1: Right. The other the only other one I was just uh, just asked was uh, also from Huxon. Can we write Kotlin code in Visual Studio Code? Is there any useful uh, extension?
0: Um, I can't say that for 100% I haven't done it, but I'd be very surprised if there wasn't heavy Kotlin support in that as well with like a plugin that um, handles it and does linting and compiling, et cetera. So I will will find out, um, but I would assume it does and a quick search right now will uh, (laughs) tell me that. Yeah, Um, okay, cool.
1: All right. Well, that's it. So we will see everybody in two weeks uh, with our next topic, which we are still trying to figure out as we usually do. But uh, if you have any ideas for show topics, please, again, put them out there. We'd love to hear them. So uh, for the TechCast and for Chariot Tech Tuesdays, I'm Ken Rimple.
0: I'm Sujan Kapadia.
1: Have a great week.